I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The turn of the 20th century saw the Buckeye program rise to new heights. That was due to the leadership of coach John Eckstorm. Eckstorm turned around a struggling OSU program, twice leading the Buckeyes to the only championship that mattered as champions of the state of Ohio. A first for any OSU head coach. He was the first coach to finish with a winning record in program history and the first to play the mighty Michigan Wolverines to an even draw. But fortune turned. After starting center John Seagrass died from injuries sustained during a game, Coach Eckstorm left the program. Eckstorm would go on to coach at Ohio Medical in Kenyon, and eventually he served as chief medical officer at the Ohio Penitentiary. In the years after Eckstorm left the OSU program, the Buckeyes joined the Ohio Athletic Conference. The conference was home to good teams, and OSU often found itself showing well among the competition. But the program was not one of the best in the country. In fact, it wasn't even one of the best in the Midwest. Instead, looming over the shoulder was a foe Ohio State just couldn't beat, Michigan. Fielding Yost, who came to OSU's campus seeking at a head coaching gig and was thrown out after tackling a faculty member, now led the Wolverines to great heights. And to become an elite program, the Buckeyes would need to beat Yost's Michigan squad. Just as the Buckeyes were coming into their own, a conflict across the ocean would come called. The war to end all wars would change history forever. And after it, the OSU program, and the OSU-Michigan series would never be the same. This is the story of Ohio State and World War I. You'll no doubt see a newsstand holding the lantern when you walk through Ohio State's campus. 
Founded in 1881, the student newspaper stands as a living record of good days and bad, but it's more than a rundown of happenings around the Oval. The major events of American history are captured here. One of the darkest days took place more than a hundred years ago. World War I raged in Europe, and war stood at America's doorstep. It was May 1st, 1915. The German embassy in New York took an unprecedented step. The embassy published advertisements in all of New York's most read newspapers warning that any person traveling in the water of the North Atlantic took their lives into their own hands. New Yorkers laughed off the warning. This was surely a ploy to hurt British business and maybe gin up some more business for rival German boats. That day, Alfred G. Vanderbilt showed up to board the Lusitania in New York. Alfred approached the dock and saw a stunning sight. This wasn't just a ship. The Lusitania was a modern marvel, a floating goliath It stretched the water's edge at 787 feet and weighed more than 31,000 tons. It was one of the biggest ships in the world and one of the fastest passenger liners too. But Alfred saw something else as he walked the dock to board the ship. Telegrams. These were no ordinary telegrams. Scattered around the ship they carried a dark message that the ship would be torpedoed, that it was a sitting duck that it would be targeted. Naturally, the message spooked Alfred and the other passengers. Would the Germans really target the ship? Cruise liner officials laughed it off. They reassured guests that the Lusitania could show her heels to any submarine. It was fast, after all. And soon after, the Lusitania set off for Liverpool with 1,959 souls aboard. On the 7th of May, 1915, a German U-boat patrolling the Atlantic spotted a ship in the distance. It fired. The Lusitania sunk 20 minutes later. There, in the cold, swirling waters of the North Atlantic, more than a thousand people lost their lives. The torpedoing of the Lusitania by Germany infuriated Americans. An outrage stirred in Ohio. In the pages of the Lantern, George Wells Knight, Dean of the College of Education, Professor of International Law, weighed in, saying, there is absolutely no rule or principle of international law which justifies the sinking of a merchant vessel. Knight warned the people of Ohio further. It seems that any American is very foolish to set off for Europe now. In Washington, D.C., President Woodrow Wilson demanded that the Germans stop the submarine attacks, but a furious Wilson still held back from entering the war. Since war broke out a year earlier in Europe, Wilson proclaimed a policy of neutrality, a popular position with the American people. The thinking went that Americans didn't have vital interests at stake, that this was a European war, and involvement would cost American lives over a European conflict. Neutrality allowed America to serve in the role of peacemaker. There were economic benefits, too. American companies could continue to trade with Germany and the United Kingdom, but the sinking of the Lusitania marked the turn of public opinion against Germany seemed only a matter of time before the U.S. would find herself at war. As public anger grew a year after the Lusitania's sinking, Ohio State Journals and Professor Osmond C. Hooper published a poem in The Lantern. It captured the mood of the day. Ring out, O bell of the fathers, that rang in the long ago, for the earth is red with slaughter, and black with human woe. Ring out, there is need of solace, the cheer of your heaven-sent song. The strength of your mighty message, that right shall master wrong.
but the threats of the day weren't only posed by German submarines in the Atlantic. No moon hung in the sky on March 9, 1916 in the border town of Columbus, New Mexico. There, in the 4 a.m. darkness, Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa raided the U.S. military garrison. The incursion killed eight U.S. soldiers and ten civilians. More than 200 of Villa's men died. Former President Teddy Roosevelt was outraged and pressed U.S. leaders to strengthen the military. President Wilson understood he had to act. Wilson signed legislation readying the U.S. to fight conflicts both near and far. Called the National Defense Act, the new law increased the size of the Army and expanded the National Guard. It also had a provision that Ohio State prove instrumental and bring into life. Among the challenges the military faced was a lack of junior officers to lead a growing force. The outbreak of World War I concerned Ohio State President William Oxley Thompson. Along with Thompson, OSU professor Edward Orton Jr. and alumnus Ralph Marchand co-authored what came to be known as the Ohio Plan. The plan proposed leveraging some of the nation's premier institutes of learning as a training ground for the future leadership of the U.S. military. Congress adopted the Ohio Plan, and as a result, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, today's ROTC, was born. By 1917, the War Department put ROTC programs in place at six leading universities, Ohio State, Cornell, MIT, Illinois, California, and Texas. At Ohio State, 16 cadets enrolled in the first ROTC cohort. Competition was fierce to enter the program and grueling in the program. Military drills, technical and strategic classes, it was all there, and OSU's campus made way accordingly. Hayes Hall served as a bunk room for cadets, the Ohio Union, their cafeteria and social escape. Coeds made surgical bandages and uniforms. Now, the grim reality of joining the war in Europe seemed inevitable, but the path forward remained unclear. What was clear was that Ohio stood ready to serve. The sinking of the Lusitania and momentum to join World War I took place right as Ohio State's football program came into its own. The early 1900s were a much different time for Ohio State football. The Buckeyes were not a power. There was no horseshoe. You would not find many fans tailgating under blue-gray skies on Saturdays in the fall. Yet, for all that was different, one thing did stand the test of time. Michigan. Michigan was the big kid on the block. When you ran into the Wolverines in the early 1900s, you were going to lose. The question was not if you would win, but how close you would keep the inevitable blowout. And few teams kept it very close. When Ohio State took the field against Michigan in 1901, the Buckeyes were blown out 21 to nothing. But that was more than respectable. Actually, Losing by three touchdowns was the closest any team would keep it against the Wolverines all season. Michigan drubbed Stanford 49 to nothing. They stomped Iowa 50 to nothing. And perhaps the English language lacks a term to describe what they did to Buffalo. The Wolverines beat Buffalo 128 to nothing. Yes, 128 to nothing. Michigan's point a minute team, led by legendary coach Fielding Yost, outscored opponents. 550 points to zero that season. They were unstoppable. And the lopsidedness extended to the Ohio State-Michigan series. Through the 1918 season, the Buckeyes and Wolverines played 15 times, 
Ohio State lost every game except for two measly ties. Michigan shut out OSU in 10 of those losses. At that time, the Buckeyes weren't scoring a point a minute like the Wolverines. They were just trying to score any points at all. During those early days of the rivalry, conference realignment pushed and pulled the teams together. In 1907, Michigan was booted from the Western Conference over compliance issues. As an independent, Michigan needed opponents, and the Western Conference banned the Wolverines from playing any of its teams. The Buckeyes were part of the Ohio Athletic Conference and a ready opponent. The formative years of the rivalry were underway. Every season from 1907 to 1912, the Buckeyes and Wolverines squared off. But even that ended up being short-lived. Ohio State joined the Western Conference in 1913, and with Michigan still banned from playing teams in the conference, there was a five-year ceasefire to the budding rivalry. For five years, from 1913 to 1917, the game, Ohio State versus Michigan, was not played. When Michigan finally rejoined the Western Conference, it gave the conference 10 teams and a new shorthand nickname that stuck, the Big Ten. But that five-year period, that five-year ceasefire when the game was not played, well, that made all the difference. When the Wolverines rejoined the Big Ten, they found a different Ohio State team than the squad they were used to. This Buckeye program was coming off back-to-back -back conference championships in 1916 and 1917. This Buckeye team was good. Actually, they were a lot better than good. And suddenly, there was a buzz around Columbus for college football. There were articles written far and wide about an Ohio State halfback with almost supernatural ability, a two-time All-American that folks here just called Chick. The Wolverines had been the big kid on the block for so long and that little kid Ohio State program they were used to pushing around had finally grown up. And this Buckeye program, well, they were itching for one more fight. But it would be some time before Ohio State and Michigan met again at full strength. World War I raged on, and in 1917, President Woodrow Wilson's long-held position of neutrality came to a decisive end. British intelligence intercepted a secret diplomatic message from Germany to Mexico. The message was authored by German Foreign Secretary Arthur Zimmerman. It proposed an alliance between Germany and Mexico if the U.S. joined the war on the side of the Allies. Zimmerman went further. He promised that Germany would fight alongside Mexico to reconquer territory they had lost in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona in the Mexican-American War. The contents of the secret message were sensational, and the final spark that ignited U.S. entry into World War I. President Wilson received the telegram on February 24, 1917. The U.S. media had it less than a week later. The American public was outraged. At Ohio State, the lantern headline read, Worst fears of Americans may now be justified. Ohio State President William Oxley Thompson outlined the case for the U.S. to enter the war and hinted at the eventual victory. Germany has failed in every great thing that she has undertaken in the war so far. In Washington, President Wilson had had enough. Things moved quickly from there. By early April, Wilson went before Congress and asked for a declaration of war against Germany. By October, American troops entered combat in France. In December, the U.S. declared war on Austria-Hungary. America's sons and daughters found ways to serve the cause, and, in 1918, 
the college football season took a back seat to the war effort. Around the country and at Ohio State, key players joined the armed forces to contribute. Chick Harley, Ohio State's All-American halfback and first true star, headed to Wilbur Wright Flying School in Dayton to become an airman. Harley faced significant pressure to return to school to play in 1918, but would have none of it. He told the Columbus Dispatch, I'm afraid I wouldn't feel right going back. I'm honestly crazy about getting into the service and have my decision made. Gaylord Stinchcomb, part of a dynamic duo in Ohio State's backfield with Harley, headed to Chicago to join the Navy. At the time of Stinchcomb's departure, only three lettermen remained to form the core of the 1918 Ohio State team. College football stars were on the battlefield, but even so, the sport was still of huge cultural importance. With the blessing of President Woodrow Wilson, the Rose Bowl was played in 1918. It was a different game that reflected the time. The Marine unit from Mare Island took on the Army unit of Fort Lewis. 25,000 people attended. The Marines won the day. Back on campus at Ohio State, students and faculty sewed a large memorial flag. On it were hundreds of stars. Star after star after star after star of gold. 2,640 stars total, each star representing a woman or man from the university who pitched in with a war effort. The flag flew high over Thompson Library. World War I ended on November 11, 1918. More than 2 million troops served on the Western Front in Europe. More than 53,000 U.S. troops lost their lives. As troops returned home victorious, the stars of college football returned to campuses around the country. Now, at full strength again, Ohio State geared up for a clash against a foe they had never beat before. Michigan. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The setting for the 1919 Ohio State-Michigan game would become a familiar one. Both teams entered the game undefeated. Michigan held a 2-0 record. Ohio State stood at 3-0. Each team was also unscored upon, outscoring opponents a combined 193 points to nothing. For 22 years, 22 years, mighty Michigan tormented Ohio State. The Buckeyes headed to Ann Arbor this day, led by two-time All-American halfback Chick Harley. They were intent on making this a different result. Fans came early. By 2 o'clock, there was not a seat to be found. At 2.03, Harley, the All-American, the senior, led his team onto the field before a capacity 25,000 fans. The Wolverines ran out to a rousing chorus of cheers 10 minutes later. 
Michigan's band came on after that. The Buckeye band was soon to follow with a rousing chorus of Carmen, Ohio. And the crowd there, the Wolverine crowd there, removed their hats as a sign of respect. Michigan fans were in for a sight they had never seen before. The galloping, almost supernatural ability of Chick Harley. James Thurber said of Harley, If you never saw him run with a football, we can't describe it to you. It was a kind of a cross between music and cannon fire that brought your heart up under your ears. The Buckeyes jumped to an early lead, blocking the Michigan punt and recovering it in the end zone. Michigan chipped in a field goal and the Buckeyes took a 7-3 lead into the half. The Cleveland Plain dealer recaps what happened next. Just after the start of the third quarter, the score standing 7-3 in favor of Ohio State, the famous Harley started on a run from punt formation from the 50-yard line. Dashing around the end, he sidestepped flying tackles and continued his sprint to the Michigan goal. 4,000 state fans reached the border of insanity, yelling themselves hoarse. Ohio State took a 13-3 lead, missing the point after. The plane dealer continued. At this point, it was evident that Michigan had no chance to win unless a miracle happened. The 20,000 Michigan rooters, however, still maintained their pep, cheering the team on. It was a cheer of hopelessness. Whispers of the awe at the cleverness of Chick Harley ran through the crowd. It was the first time the Michigan fans had seen the great Ohioan play. Tonight, all is gloom in Ann Arbor, while Ohio State's followers are raving maniacs. Columbus fans who came here in mass today on a special train of freight loaded down with money to bet on their football team are now riding back in Pullman's. Ohio celebrated the burial rites for the Michigan Jinx here today. After the game, legendary Michigan coach Fielding Yost took a highly unusual step. The Michigan coach asked the Ohio State coaching staff if he could address their victorious Buckeye squad. The coaching staff agreed, and Yost, Michigan's coach, delivered a message to his victorious Buckeye opponent. You deserved your victory. You fought brilliantly. You boys gave a grand exhibition of football strategy. And while I am sorry, dreadfully sorry, that we lost, I want to congratulate you, Yost, who himself had coached many of the best players of the era, then turned to Harley and said, And you, Mr. Harley, I believe you are one of the finest little machines I have ever seen. On that day, Ann and Arbor, it was clear. That day, a hundred years ago, the rivalry would now never be the same. Years later, on the ninth anniversary of the U.S. entry into World War I, a memorial was dedicated to those who served and sacrificed from the Buckeye State. The memorial was awe-inspiring. A rotunda with a stained glass dome ringed with four massive bronze panels depicting the experience of Ohioans in World War I. And a statue, the victorious doughboy, modeled after an Ohio State veteran. The memorial stood for 86 years in the Ohio History and Agricultural Museum on OSU's campus, but the museum moved and much of the memorial was tucked away and largely forgotten. 
History has a funny way of getting lost, of being erased by the passage of time. Known or unknown, the actions of Ohio State around the war to end all wars reverberate still today. Those actions are found every time a cadet graduates from ROTC. They are found in the contributions and sacrifices in the graves of soldiers, sailors, and airmen around the state and the globe. It was not because of the war, but happening alongside it in time, that Ohio State rose to power in college football. And every time the victory bell rings under a cold blue-gray November sky, one might close their eyes, and you might think, just for a moment, that you've heard the rapturous chorus of joy sparked by a 50-yard gallop in Ann Arbor nearly a century ago, the echoes of the greats of the game, whose names have faded with time, but whose actions live on, whose actions still breathe, even today. Thanks for listening to I Want to Go Back, a podcast about the people, places, and events that shaped Ohio State football. I'm your host, Jim Baird. This podcast is part of Land Grant Holy Land's network of Buckeye podcasts. If you did like what you listened to, please give us a five-star rating and share it with your friends. Music for this episode was provided by Fields Ohio, so a special thanks to them. As you know, a podcast like this builds on great research already out there. If you want to read more, I'd encourage you to check out The Die Hard Fan's Guide to Buckeye Football by Mark Ray, as well as the absolutely invaluable, the official Ohio State Football Encyclopedia by the legendary Jack Park. Both were terrific resources for me in my research and offer great insights into Ohio State football and OSU football history. Thanks for listening.